Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Make him an offer, Kill us if you got the chance. I can handle things. I'm smart. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Brian De Palma, the master of the macabre, who shocked audiences everywhere with Sisters, Carrie, Obsession, and The Fury, now invites you to a showing of the latest fashion in murder. Dressed to Kill. Michael Caine, Angie Dickinson, Nancy Allen. Dressed to Kill. Murder made to order. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Quadfecta, the podcast where we discuss whether a legendary filmmaker was able to accomplish four truly great films in a row. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan. And today we're joined by Jessica Kretz, who's a writer living in Kansas City. She writes about film and popular culture and has written about our subject today, Brian De Palma, most notably in the piece called The Unintentional Empathy of Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill. And this is on the website Crooked Marquee. Hello, Jessica. Hey. Hi, Mitch. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. So you being this huge De Palma fan, would you like to tell us, um, could you remember the first De Palma movie that you saw or when De Palma kind of entered your consciousness? Oh, gosh. You know, I, I know I would have seen Mission Impossible when I was when I was younger, and I know I saw like The Untouchables. I think when I first like got into De Palma and like watched a movie where I realized I'm watching a movie by someone named Brian De Palma, and there's some significance to that. Probably was when I first watched Blowout. I had heard someone say it was good, and I was like, oh yeah, I'll try it, and I just kind of got hooked from there. What was it that hooked you about? about blowout i think i i've always been well one i've always been a huge hitchcock fan and so there was something really fun for me about like de palma is really one of the few people who kind of has also used that very expressive like hitchcockian language uh, especially compared to any other imitators um and uh i don't know it's just really expressive amazing to look at cinema i, I don't know I love yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. John, do you remember when you when you realized who Brian De Palma was? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I kind of remember his name just being in the ether. Sort of like just knowing Brian De Palma without having even seen, maybe not seeing a film yet. I know that, I'm pretty sure the first time I saw a Brian De Palma film, it was with my parents. And it was Untouchables on like ABC or something. Whatever the TV premiere of the Untouchables was. And, but I knew, I remember already knowing who he was, and I think I'd heard of Carrie. You know, I come from that HBO, like when HBO first came around in the early 80s and everybody had it in their house, and you would see these movies you weren't supposed to see when you were at your neighbor's house and stuff, and right. you just like might see a, a an ad or read about it in the little guide they would send you and stuff. So I don't know, as far as, but and the connection to Hitchcock was there too in my mind, but I wasn't, you know, I was in junior high, I wasn't fully putting those things together quite yet. But I remember reading that 
story about you know Hitchcock and the bomb and saboteur, and or sab- it was sabotage that the bomb goes off and kills the kid, and then how Hitchcock said, "Oh, you're not supposed to do that." I learned quickly that you're not supposed to do that, and then De Palma was like, "Well, what I make it does was like, I'm going to do it, you know, <laughs> like I'm going to blow a kid up right at the beginning of the movie." <laughs> I remember thinking all that was really clever and cool. And I got into them. And then seeing Carrie then, that was a whole other, I mean, that was a revelation, you know, seeing Carrie, even though I knew its reputation. But, you know, like Stephen King's stories and things, those were um, absolutely out in my household. <laughs> that was like Satanism. I was basically, not that my parents were like Piper Laurie by any means, but there was a little bit, a little hint of it. But, uh, you know, then it was just once I saw some, once I saw Carrie, once I saw Blowout, it was over. You yeah. know, I was pretty much in love. Yeah, Carrie pretty much blew my mind, too. It's still like one of the 10 greatest in the theater experiences that I've ever had. It was just completely packed theater, and the temperature went up when everybody started running around naked at the beginning, and everybody was cramped in this room, and and then, of course, by the time you get to the end and the hand comes out, everybody was screaming, and it really was just a phenomenal experience. And then I started reading about him and, and tracked down... I, f- I was I was obsessed with Phantom of the Paradise and it had already been out and I, I could there was no way to see it and then it played at the drive-in on a double bill with Race with the Devil and that was just an amazing drive-in night to see both of those movies and I think I went back and Wait, wh- saw it a what was the times. order do you remember the uh, order Race with the Devil was first good that's, and then that's Phantom good of the Paradise yeah. Race, we just watched Race with the Devil recently Mitch at, in did. your backyard and. Having seen it again, I was like, "Yeah, I would much rather finish with Phantom of the Paradise." Like, I feel like you'd you'd leave the drive-in with feeling much more satisfied if you saw that one uh, last. That's probably that's probably true. Um, yeah. So, Jessica, you have um, proposed four De Palma movies, a run of four movies that, that we were going to talk about today. Um, you want to do? You, you want to list them? Yeah. So the four that I have thought about. Uh, were uh, Dress to Kill in 1980, Blowout in 81, uh, Scarface in 83, uh, in 83, and then Body Double in 84. And I feel like that's what we've, you know, we've talked about, hell, I think Mitch and I have probably almost talked about everybody in regards to the quadfecta idea before, but this is certainly the one we've discussed the most, I think in the past as a possible one as well, mm-hmm. and always had our thoughts but I'm looking forward to talking about it because, yeah, I mean, the, not, not all these movies are the same to me. Not all these movies uh, are on the same level to me. So I, I, it'll be interesting to talk about that, though. I mean, I was going to say, even with my, my four, there's some some are definitely stronger than others, even though I think all four are, 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 are great that I picked. Yeah. Well, you recently wrote this piece about Dress to Kill, so it's a great place to start. Can you? This is terrible to ask anybody to to um, boil down what the what their fully thought out article was. But can you kind of hip us to the thesis of of the article that you wrote about Dress to Kill? Yeah, uh, you, you say it was recent. I actually wrote that about three years ago. It just always comes up every so often. Anytime De Palma comes up, because it was not to name drop, even though I am name dropping. It was recently like. Uh, mentioned in like the newsletter for Tarantino's podcast and so all of a sudden it's been getting mentioned again but um so I'm trying to actually remember what I wrote (laughs) (laughs) 
Do you remember uh, the impetus of it? Like, because yeah. I think this this question of reconsidering Dress to Kill right now is like, I mean, there are, I have been afraid to show it in in class, you know, because I think that you know it's it's gender politics are 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 tricky, you know. Well, and it's it's funny to think about because uh, the things that are controversial about it now are not what was controversial about it when it came out. Like the trans stuff, no one gave a shit about it. it was the um, uh, it was uh, feminists who were mad about it about the treatment for to, to women, um, and then slowly has grown to like the trans audience being like, no, no, we were uncomfortable about this too. Um, so basically, what the article was about was um, there for anyone who hasn't seen Dress to Kill. This is a spoiler. But the big spoiler for Dress to Kill, the big twist, is that um, uh, the killer is a trans woman. Uh, And for obvious reasons, the uh, trans community has been pretty uncomfortable uh, with with that movie for a long time because of that. Um, I think I had read about that as, like, being a point of controversy before I'd even seen the movie, and I... Gosh, I saw the movie I, probably a decade ago for the first time, um, if not longer, uh, farther back than that. But um, basically what I did with my piece was about looking at um, the context in which it had been written and that I found that the psychiatrist character, who is the trans woman serial killer, as is revealed, uh, I found that... Um, you know, the reasons that she wasn't able to transition in the movie, um, a lot of it having to do with uh, her own attraction. Uh, uh, The movie kind of jumbles it up with this idea of like, oh, there's the male side and the female side, one side's attracted. But it was basically because of his like attraction to women that was kind of what was causing the trans woman side of him to, to rise up. Basically, I argued... That he was actually writing about, like, in a way, I felt that he had to have been familiar with um, the actual restrictions at the time um, on trans people. Um, particularly that uh, you were not considered a good candidate if uh, um, if you were uh, a trans woman, if you were wanting to become a trans woman who was not attracted to men. Um, and so I was kind of looking at the film as uh, that... Uh, I, I kind of think the film was a little empathetic anyways, even without that background to it, to to the character of Bobby, to the trans woman. Um, but I was kind of seeing that, like, the film kind of represented on a on a very melodramatic scale uh, kind of uh, the restrictions that trans people were going through even at that time. Yeah, I feel like De Palma's movies are never uh, uninformed. I always feel like whatever whatever world he's going to explore, he, he doesn't just, he doesn't you know. He half-ass it. No, he doesn't. He actually, he's, you know, he has a scientific mind and he, he is clearly interested as, in research and, and, and exploring something. And so mm-hmm. I always feel like he, he's often misjudged because he goes for these big swing-for-the-fences kind of emotions and bravura shots and big melodramatic operatic stuff and at the same time he is considerate 
of 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 mm-hmm. his topic. I you know I don't know how well even just from seeing interviews with him I don't know how how well he understood uh, trans people, um, but I don't think there's anything malicious on his on his end about it or any. Every I don't know if you've ever seen him talk about, but I've seen interviews where he talks about like he mainly just seems fascinated by trans people. Um, it always struck me as that more, and you know, he found the psycho connection and was able to make a movie about it. So, yeah. Well, it seems to me you know, we talk about, and he talks about himself. That De Palma's like he's very much fascinated with ideas. Like ideas are everything to him. Mm-hmm. Um, the big idea, and then all the little ideas that come with scene after scene in his movies. And from what I understand is he saw the Donahue episode, right, that we see in mm-hmm. the film, and he just followed that. Like he said, okay, there's an idea I can follow. So the research he does, while it's thorough, is in pursuit of the idea that he wants to apply to mm-hmm. his art. Not come, to, I, I want to come to an understanding about trans people. I don't think that, that just doesn't seem to interest him. I'm not sure how much... It, uh, Real people interest De Palma at all, actually. No, I think it's yeah, mostly, I don't, uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't think, he wasn't setting out to make a movie about trans people, but yeah. he was like, oh, this makes a good device, and, you know, he did his research to some to some degree on it, but yeah. Well, I had a, I did have one question, that Mitch and I were discussing this a little bit, and it was just an impression I have. It doesn't, I don't know whether the intentionality was there with De Palma or whether anyone else reads it this way, but I always find that sort of that post reveal scene, you know, we get the reveal and then we get the psycho scene where uh, Tony Soprano's lawyer, Margulies is his name, uh, does the whole psycho scene where he explains it. And then we get this, you know, meeting up for a drink uh, between our two main characters, you know, uh, or who ends up being our two main characters. And I always feel like that takes a little bit of an edge off of it somehow. So the way they're talking about it, I, I wonder how other people read that scene though. They don't seem to think it's that strange. <laughs> like they're discuss, they're getting a little bit of a laugh out of it maybe, but they also aren't, they're not grossed out or weirded out by it. But that lady behind those, the pearl clutcher lady and the split diopter, you know, that is. So I always wonder if to me, it kind of takes the edge off of the villainization of yeah. Michael Caine, but maybe that's, a false reading. One, I don't know. Uh, I love that scene. I think it's really funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I do think on one level, they are kind of like, that seems kind of pointing out and being like, well, look how crazy this is. Um, but I mainly think the scene's funny. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't think it's, uh, just as the, I don't think the rest of the film is malicious. Um, I don't. I don't believe this is. I. I think De Palma is kind of. I mean, again, I'm mentioning him talking about interviews. He gets giddy kind of talking about it because it's something that to him is like really interesting, and so you're kind of seeing that kind of displayed in the scene. Um, and, and yeah, like I said, I don't think I. I think maybe some people would say it's not something that's funny to joke about, but I think it's funny and I'm trans, so who gives a fuck, so. <laughs> I think he's a political filmmaker always. He's a he's an mm-hmm. agitprop guy. He wants to provoke the audience any way that he can. And whether, and you certainly look at the, his early movies, you look at Greetings and Hi Mom, those are just totally political movies. And so he always has this political undercurrent of, of every almost every film that he's ever made. And and the more he can shock and the more he can rattle the audience, 
the happier he is. And he does get giddy about it. Like he seems to really, um, he enjoys what he does. And I remember seeing this, the episode on Dick Cavett with Scorsese and De Palma, and they were laughing through the whole interview. And I remember seeing this as a kid being really kind of shocked because I knew what kind of movies they both made. And I had, I just couldn't believe that they were having, you know, such a great time talking about all this stuff. Well, the, the, there's that, uh, documentary about sisters about the making of sisters and he talks about the you know the sequence where the they quote unquote freaks you know they're all in the the asylum or whatever and he just starts laughing so much what he's describing and describing how terrifying it was for jennifer salton and so on and it's just like dude like it's I, but you could tell it's just like coming out of it it's not he's not really like oh i'm taking joy in this and it was so funny to me it's just like I don't know, something about, yeah, prodding people or getting reactions that just makes him, mm-hmm. gets him excited, which makes him an exciting filmmaker to me. I mean, that's what, he gets big reactions from, he comes up with ideas that get big reactions, and I love that feeling as a viewer, you know, and that's why I love, you know, like I said, he's the idea guy. He's always got some idea to make something in- more interesting. He's always got a way. He's never going to just give you a scene that's just a scene it's always going to have something well not always I, w- I will say some of his movies don't succeed as much as others but and the ones that we're talking about mainly yeah i think that there's, there's always a good idea there. there's always an interesting idea yeah and and mitch mentioned um you know how he's always a political filmmaker but he's really like and i guess not to get snooty sounding i guess but he's, he's a very good uh filmmaker as well like and to me, I think that goes with the political, with that product, uh, uh, you know, his desire to provoke. Um, uh, I, I think that kind of all comes together because to him, it is like about these big, these big images. And he couches that in Hitchcock, um, kind of in that visual styling. But for him, it is like about those big moments of provoking the audience. <laughs> yeah, and he said in early interviews... I remember the one about Phantom of the Paradise in American film that I read when I first started reading about him. And maybe he was also being a little provocative in doing this, but he was always saying, you know, um, Hitchcock's important to me, but not as important as Godard. You know, it's like Godard's who really, who really inspires me. And I think that that playing with the distanciation between the audience and the material and all that Godard sort of stuff does fit perfectly with with what De Palma's doing. I mean, Hitchcock's how he got people in the seats. You know, he he found a popular, uh, very visually driven, very cinematic uh, form that he could then bring kind of those, uh, with a lot of polish that he could bring those kind of Godardian ideas to. Yeah, well, he comes off of this with such a huge hit with Dress to Kill, and then mm-hmm. he makes Blowout, which I think these days people consider maybe his masterpiece or one of his masterpieces, and it was a terrible box office failure. Yeah, uh, Dress to Kill, despite it being now kind of the uh, the one that people, De Palma fans are sometimes afraid to talk about. Uh, I mean, that one was the hit, but this one just... It went nowhere. You had a huge star. Uh, you had uh, uh, John Travolta, and but yeah, yeah, no, it's its reputation has changed. Like it's it's an amazing movie. It's um, you know, it's it's funny. It's very Hitchcockian, but it's not him specifically doing, except maybe arguably Rear Window. 
It began with a sound that no one was ever supposed to hear. He's the one I saw? Yes, he says he pulled the girl out of the car. I would like you to forget about her. the tire blew out. You're right, it was a shot. He recorded a murder. They say it never happened. There are still loose ends. Witnesses. The girl, I've decided to terminate her. Terminate her. Terminate her. De Palma's blowout. Now you hear it. Now you don't. Yeah, it, it, little... it doesn't have a Hitchcock plot. It, it's got yeah. more in common it's with blowout, actually. Yeah, yeah with Antonioni more... and um, with uh, the Coppola movie. Yeah, conversation. Yeah, yeah it's a uh, it's a curious movie. I was I was listening. I've got I listened to Paul Hirsch's book on Audible and. I was re-listening to it in preparation for this, and he was talking about blowout. And man, they had a lot of trouble. You know, they lost the negative, like the parade scene and all this stuff that happened. All this like stress and turmoil and and hard work that went into it. And then when they screened it, the, it flat out got booed at the end. Like he said, he never experienced anything like that. Where when when she uh, when he can't say for at the end, it was just not acceptable to the audience at the time. I've always thought that was one of the best things about the movie. Like my my feeling is I love it when I love it that he doesn't make it and I love the symmetry of the ending with the beginning you know I love her scream being the scream all that stuff just satisfies my little you know I don't know it's kind of basic the symmetry maybe that's kind of basic I don't know but I love it it's very satisfying to me when that happens at the end it's heartbreaking and satisfying at the same time and that's kind of what I like like I think that's my taste to my taste you know. So, and, and the other thing about blood, you know, we talk about it's, it's right at the edge, maybe the last of those paranoid seventies thrillers, right? Like it feels a lot like it could be in, it's in the same, um, genre with the parallax view or three days of the condor and which so on as well, which I love partly why, probably partly why it didn't do as well as I think those had started to fall out of favor. <laughs> sure. Yeah. That, it was that what, very well could be true. I mean, this was, came out in 81, I think. Mm-hmm. So we're in a post-Empire Strikes Back world. You know, we've mm-hmm. already got two Star Wars movies under our belt. Yeah, we're, we're done Reagan with world. your... Yeah. yeah. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think paranoia. it's... <laughs> yeah, that's right. Reagan would have been in office. He might have just gotten shot about the time this movie came out or something. I can't remember. That was you know, 81, right? <laughs> what was really interesting is I remember there was a magazine called... I don't know if it was called Take One or Take Two. And um, De Palma did this thing where through this magazine they solicited treatments for um for for blowout and and people they encouraged um aspiring filmmakers to send in this treatment with this just basic idea of what the movie was and 
you know, I sent one in, I remember, and I was still in high school. It was so ridiculous, but, um, and I, I'm sure he didn't use any, I'm sure it was just all a stunt, but it was just like, it does speak to this kind of openness that he always seems to, um, represent, which is like, I'll let Julie Solomon follow me all over on Bonfire of the Vanities or that book, Double De Palma, where he's doing body double. They have somebody following him around writing about that. He seemed, or even with, with, um, uh, uh, the the movie that he made with Keith Gordon at Sarah Lawrence, um, the the oh, with, uh, with Kirk Douglas. What was it called, John? With Keith Gordon and Kirk Douglas and oh no, home movies, home, home movies. movies, yeah, home movies. Right, right. God, um, I was like, sorry. Wait, what? <laughs> uh, but just sorry. even that—that that he went to Sarah Lawrence and they made a movie with a bunch of students. I mean, he always seems to be kind of open towards towards that that kind of thing. Is he credited as sole writer on on Blowout? I think he is. Yeah, mm-hmm. let me double check. I have it right here. Yep, written written by yeah. Brian De Palma. Did he not also, didn't they also have some terrible problem with the sound recording sequence when they went out into that canyon and they like, they, they lit all night or something and then it didn't come out right or they had to go back again? I, I, I can't remember the story, but that it was, it was definitely, a, it, they had their, their share of these big production problems. It was a difficult, sh- and I know that uh, Hirsch said too that they, the parade sequence was supposed to, be, all that was supposed to be in a subway in the original script as well and that that was basically his like there's not enough sound cues in a subway to lead him you know he needs sound cues like very distinct ones bells and crowds and whatever it may be in order for that whole sequence to work as it was structured with the uh, him following her around with the sound equipment or listening to her she was wired up so yeah it's interesting how much there was all kinds of uh stuff with blowout that was I mean, I can't remember. It wasn't even the original title. That was, what's his name? Uh, oh, I'm blanking on the producer's name right now. But um, uh, his idea to call it Blowout, and everybody was like, it's a little close to Blowout, don't you think? And <laughs> well, it doesn't bother me at all. I mean, look, come on. Like, De Palma's going to be, he's a, uh, he, does some, his co- he does a bit of a copycat routine. It's fine. It's one of the things I love about him, you know? I kind of like that. It, I always thought it was cool that it was called that. It's like, he's flat out saying, I'm making my blow up. And uh, I mean, Coppola did it too. Coppola didn't hide the fact that he was following Antonioni. So I don't know. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of trouble on it. But um, for my money, I mean, I've always said it's my favorite De Palma, and I still might be my favorite De Palma. I don't know. Like we can talk about this further, but this is certainly, definitely on the tier of truly great to me. Mm-hmm. And Dress to Kill is too. We didn't really talk about Dress to Kill as far as what we think of its quality of filmic. I don't. You know, the discussion about the gender politics aside, I don't think there's anything wrong with Dress to Kill. Like, I watched it again yesterday for the first time in a couple of years. I don't see a flaw in the filmmaking, personally. No, so, to me, those two, <laughs> those two are just like, boom, boom, truly Na- great. Nancy Allen so, bugs me in love. I don't know if she does. I just watched it again, and I was trying to <laughs> oh, figure I out. I love her in it. I just, I, I feel it. like her. She's I feel so like, sweet. Yeah, but it seems so. She seems so phony to me. I just can't buy her. Like the the accent is really weird, and and the she is so dumb. That How she her says sugar babies. Yeah, her, <laughs> I don't know. It's I, it it kills me because I really want to love the movie, and every time, and this time it was a little easier. But something about her performance has always just kind of been like nails on a chalkboard well, I'll, to me. I'll and give that you bottle this that breaks so easily. <laughs> I mean that that's just so bizarre that. I know it's a movie. I know. I know it's a movie. That's my problem with it is that it has these it has these movie movie notes to it and it makes it hard for me to take any of it seriously at all when I believe it is demanding that I take it seriously. Mm-hmm. 
her or not. Like the two of them together are, I, they, you can tell they love being in the same scenes together. And being I think in the they're same pals. Spaces. They were pals, right? I, From yeah. Carrie days, I'm yeah, pretty sure. Yeah, wanted her for the movie. I mean, I think the chemistry kind of helps me believe the character more. Mm-hmm. Like I think that relationship, that connection makes her feel more real. Like the way that they just light up when they're together. Yeah. Yeah, well, I have this I have this theory about like, this question of of how much you're supposed to believe it and how with blowout I struggle and when we get to body double we'll talk about a movie that I don't feel like I need to believe any of it and I love every second of it so we'll we'll get there in a second but um but then he follows up making scarface which is just such an a, such a a wild choice and such a a weird thing to happen he was supposed to have done prince of the city and Sidney Lamette was supposed to have done Scarface. And then by the time everything got undone, they had sort of flipped movies, and Sidney Lamette does Prince of the City. Okay, so what do you call yourself? Eh? Como se llama? Antonio Montana. And you? What you call yourself? Where'd you learn to speak the English, Tony? Uh, in a school. And my father, he was uh, from the United States. Yeah, just like you, you know. He was a Yankee. Uh, he used to take me a lot to the movies, you know. I learned. I watched the guys like uh, Humphrey Bogart, James Carney. They, they teach me to talk. I like those guys. I always know one day I'm coming here, the United States. 1980, Miami. They called it Little Havana where the American dream had a price tag and only one man in a million was hungry enough to pay. This country, you gotta make the money first. Then when you get the money, you get the power. Then when you get the power, then you get the woman. Scarface. For one brief moment, the world was his. I check his way. She liked me. He must be kidding. What are you talking about? That's a Carla. How do you know? The eyes, Chico. They never lie. Man, that's the boss's lady, okay? I am the boss. That guy's soft. I like you, Tony. There is no lying in you. Here's to the land of opportunity. We've been this together a long time. I know the street, and I'm making all of my connections. Remember I told you when you started, the guys who last in this business are the guys who fly straight. With the right woman, there's no stopping me. I could go right to the top. The word on the street, Tony, is you're not a small-time punk anymore. Supreme Court says that your privacy can be invaded. You shoot the house this month? You're spending a lot of money on this counter surveillance. We're doing 10 million, 15 million a month. Come on. Now that's serious money. Huh? Your bank boys got to come down a bit. Who else can you trust? That's why you pay us. When you do, you trust us. You're in good hands with us. Al Pacino is Scarface. He loved the American dream. 
With a vengeance. Al Pacino, Scarface. How does he get this? I, I'm, I'm trying to remember how this comes to him. Like, how does De Palma end up being the director of Scarface? I, guess, I think it was just because, I mean, just like Mitch was saying, or whoever was saying it, I think it was just because, uh, well, Matt... Uh, it was just a director-for-hire thing, right? Yeah, like, it was supposed to be Lamette making it. And Stone had already written the script. Yeah. Mitch, do you know anything yeah. about Stone and De Palma? Like, how much did they interact with each other? Oh, all, I mean, all I know is that that Stone had directed, you know, The Hand, and there was a point at which De Palma asked, had to have him leave the set because mm-hmm. Stone was talking to actors, right, which is right. really funny because I can't remember what, what movie it was on, but um, there's a, there's another story where um, Stone goes up to a writer on one of Stone's sets and says, "Don't talk to my actors." <laughs> so it's like, well, he got, learned from De Palma. He certainly must have learned. Yeah, he got thrown off a thrown off of a movie for doing that. Uh, but but yeah, it's uh, it's such a it's such an odd movie in that uh, right off the bat, the first two voices in the scene with Pacino. Are are dubbed voices by two De Palma regulars, mm-hmm. um, Dennis Franz and Charles Durning. They're both doing the the cop voices for the uh, interrogation of Tony Montana at the very it's, beginning. It's so it's weird because you I always hear Dennis Franz and then I forget because I go well he's not in the movie and then I just don't hear it anymore for some reason. It's really weird. And then you mentioned it again. I was like yes. I always at the beginning go wait Dennis Franz isn't in this scene and I go, no he's not. I know he's not. And then I forget about it. But it's so strange that that's the first voice you hear. But he's in. But so so really spiritually because if you count that he's in all four of these movies. Dennis Franz is. The Dennis Franz Franz uh, Quadfecta. Quadfecta. Yeah. <laughs> Which would have included the Fury as well, right? If we. Uh, we reached right. back or skipped <laughs> yeah, over yeah. home movies. Yeah, but which is his first movie role, I think. I th- maybe was yeah. in the Fury. Yeah, but so okay, let's talk about Scarface then, Jessica. What's your like? This was an earlier. Was this an earlier diploma for you? It was such a popular one for some. So people, no, this so is one I avoided for a long time. This one looked kind of gross and boyish to me i guess like tough guy like that doesn't do a whole lot for me all the time right and uh, this is the one where i struggle because like on one level i think it is a at times really well-made movie uh that is culturally very was i mean this was not a hit when it came out but like, it kind of just overtook the culture as well. I mean, it's a pretty culturally major. It, it did well ever. when it did well when it came out. It just wasn't it? the smash hit that they wanted it okay. to be. But it, it did it did okay. It, it cost I've always a lot it, of money. Yeah, I've always read it what talked about as a disappointment. But I yeah. guess, yeah, if something yeah. costs that much. It costs a lot of money. <laughs> what, at one point, did you, did you just became a De Palma completist and decided to watch it? or? Yeah, I was watching through all his other stuff. And I, I finally, I kind of find it a little boring. Like, it's good. It's really good, and Pacino's good. Uh, but it's just, it's so long, and it's so bloated. 
which I think speaks to the movie itself. Like, I kind of think it needs to be that. Like, I don't, there's nothing I would say you should remove. But yeah, but his excessive monologues in the restaurants or the scenes in the hot tub, and it's just when he's reached his, you know, pinnacle. I don't, it, yeah. Yeah, I don't get the emotional connection with it. Like, I guess maybe partly because of that excess that I get with, like, usually what I consider his best. Like, they don't, they don't pull me in the same way. I'm, I'm wild by the spectacle of Scarface, uh, but it doesn't hit me in my heart, like, kind of the same way. I still think it's really good, which is why I, you know, I still think this is the stronger quadfecta for, for De Palma. But this is, to me, kind of the weak link film, despite its notoriety. Yeah. Now, I, I have a, a you know a roller coaster history with with Scarface. I remember seeing it on I think I saw it on TV with my parents, so very edited, you know. <laughs> and then, you know, I'm, I'm a late '80s, early '90s hip hop fan, right? So I get into hip hop. There's samples of it all over like Ice Cube <laughs> albums and stuff like that. So it becomes cool. Like, oh, this is cool. Got to be into Scarface. So when I got to college, I remember it was a regular thing. My roommate and I we watched Scarface a lot. It's just like, yeah, let's watch that scene again, that kind of movie watching that young men do. And it's bro-y and lame. And it doesn't say much about the quality of the movie. It's just, oh, cool stuff happens and it's funny. Like, we laugh at the funny. But, man, there is no emotional heart. I watched it again the other day. It's like, there's nothing to emotionally connect to in the movie. I don't know who, I mean, his sister, I guess, you know? Like, I, I don't know, though. It's You're right. Even, with the, even if we jump ahead outside the quadfecta to the untouchables, where it's another big Hollywood action adventure movie, if you will. Um, I certainly connected to pretty much every character in that movie emotionally, mm-hmm. right? Even if I don't love Kevin Costner, I still, I still love, you know, I still have a connection to him, him as a family man. I still have a connection to Connery's character. And I, Charles Martin Smith is one of the most heartbreaking little arcs in, in De Palma's whole <laughs> filmography if you ask me i love charles barton smith's character in that and i feel for him it's heartbreaking when he goes none of that in scarface i just i again i i agree it's a good movie i mean i love so many of the sequences are bravado amazing amazing you know sequence which was just that i remember that almost ended our watch even the suggestion of that almost ended my family's viewing of scarface you know right away i could remember that but they cut away like or they go super close up or something strange yeah, they in don't the actually scan version right <laughs> but I, well i think yeah i think you see like the blade of the chainsaw on tv or whatever and that's it you know but yeah they probably didn't have to cut very much at all for tv because you you don't see anything it's all just suggestion yeah, and a little bit of yeah, you know, red red paste being thrown around. Yeah. <laughs> lots you know, of you know, John, lots that, and lots of overdubbed, you know, like probably yeah, ridiculous that, replacements they, that, for profanity. That's what the TV. That must have been a nightmare. To <laughs> which is to a joy. Which, which is a joy for me. I still enjoy like <laughs> like edit TV edited for TV profanity. But anyway, <laughs> so when you think about the Howard Hawks Scarface, you, you don't identify with anybody in that either. Like in a way, it's kind of a perfect remake. Tonally, it's just twice as long as the original. That's but yeah. but like you don't you don't identify with any of those people in Scarface. They're all pretty miserable. Yeah, there's something different about uh, the lean and mean 1930s gangster movie versus the bl- bloated mm-hmm. epic. Yeah. Is it just simply a matter of if your movie's going to be pushing three hours? I probably need something emotional to carry me through, right? <laughs> right. Like you can get away Couldn't with hurt. an 80, 90 minute movie without that. 
where it's just social a, a social picture you know but yeah i mean you would think that's something you would try to do with the um the tony montana and the michelle pfeiffer uh romance but the movie turns that like it goes from them not being together but flirting to just very sour very quickly they yeah, never like each other at any point no. right or she never <laughs> likes him at any uh-uh. point does she it's almost like it's very weird like yeah i'm not giving you i'm not giving you a crumb this is the closest you get and she hates him yeah exactly <laughs> it's, it's you know like it makes you think you know thinking back to the 30s again it makes you think about public enemy the public enemy, and then you—you you got mama, right? You got brother. You got the family at home, and you get the heartbreaking scene of her like making his bed at the end, even though he's dead, and all that stuff. It's like why? Why didn't they lean a little bit, maybe, into his family more? I—I I don't know. I'm not saying that. I'm not trying to rewrite the movie, but it's like, man, they just really didn't have any interest in that. Like his I mom hates think, him. <laughs> I do think De Palma is mainly interested in the excess here. Yeah. Like I think the so excess stone is too. The yeah. Point. And yeah. the excess, because the movie, I think, is also, a, I mean, you know, like Mitch said earlier, he's a political filmmaker. I mean, I think the movie is, a, you know, maybe by today's standards, we might disagree with some of the portrayals uh, of some things in it. But I would say this is a pretty, like, anti-capitalist picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the excess is all that... You know, I think especially in the '80s, the Palma is seeing just excess take over excess take over everything, and with this, like, there's no there is no room for like characters for people to have like an actual connection because it's all about just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I do think the Palma is. I don't know as a viewer how fun that is, but I think that is purposeful in that case. Is that like the romance of this movie? At the heart of this movie, the true romance is just getting more shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's a lot like a Clockwork Orange in that it's sort of a it's sort of a satire all the way through. That everybody mm-hmm. is this exaggerated, horrible human, and there 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 are no redeeming characters in in either one of those movies. Which again is like that's a '70s vibe, and here is this movie that's become one of the iconic '80s movies just because of its design and color and soundtrack and all that other stuff but it's still kind of a 70s movie oh he has a dark mean heart (laughs) yeah i've already mentioned paul hirsch as a collaborator you know and when we talk about this this quadfecta idea it's a very it's very much clearly coming from the auteur theory angle right we're talking about this individual person and whether they individually accomplished Mm -hmm. these four great movies in a row but i always think we should take into account uh at least mention certain people that were consistent collaborators like paul hirsch uh, but also, even if they're not a consistent collaborator, I do think it would be interesting to talk about Oliver Stone and his sensibilities as being the screenwriter of this film, where the other movies we've talked about have been De Palma scripts, right? Um, right? All three of the other movies, mm-hmm. or the two other uh, movies were both original And the next plays. one that we're going to talk and the about. Next this one. is the only one that's not a De Palma original. So it's always, it's, it's always interesting to think about De Palma and who co-writes or writes the scripts that he ends up shooting as well, and what that means. And I don't is is Stone also like is this a political film Stone very political filmmaker as well what is this what he's coming with the same exact uh I think point so. of view I think the idea that we start with the whole you know with with Castro emptying the prisons you know and there's a there's this political context right off the bat about mm-hmm. it I think 
I do think we kind of see that both their political and I, I think politically they're probably different filmmakers generally, but I think you kind of see their interests intersect with this. Because I think you get heavy doses of both of kind of their, you know, their fascinations, new diplomas with artifice and with just, just rich people trying to get richer and bigger and... And the interesting corruption. Corruption, yeah, right. Yeah, corruption with the police. Everybody's corrupt uh, in it. So it's kind of... It's interesting to think about those four crime pictures that De Palma made. Scarface, Untouchables, Carlito's Way, which is based on a book. Black Dahlia, based on a book. I mean, they're all not original De Palma, you know, creations. I mean, for the most part, it's really just his thrillers that are the the originals that he writes himself yeah um although, maybe Dave, you know snake eyes was david cap but i think he wrote that they wrote it together right or yeah i don't know if he has a, a credit on that but i think he i, I mean i think he, maybe it's a story by i don't remember yeah, i guess i remember in the credits they both both their names are in there as writing credits of some kind but i don't remember the exact but cap definitely because cap also shoot i'm forgetting is cap also writer of mission impossible until Robert mm-hmm. Town came in. Yeah, yeah I think And so. then Robert Town came in and then Kep had to rewrite Town and all that stuff. Yeah, right? he, De Palma had to like yeah. fire him and then rehire him. Yeah. But I yeah. think that with the other thing about Scarface as this Martin Bregman, Al Pacino, Star Vehicle, Universal Pictures, been in development, multiple directors, you know, then they go to make the movie and they have so much trouble, they basically get kicked out of Florida. So then they're going up to Santa Barbara to shoot, and they're shooting all around southern california uh and then they they do some location work it's mexico i think they sub, subs in for for colombia uh and and then some stuff in new york so it's it's de palma really taking on this a mammoth studio production which he does several of those through his throughout his career including the bonfire the vanities one that didn't turn out particularly well but mm. it is this it's fascinating because you think of him as this director of these small contained political thrillers. And he's also capable of taking on these massive, you know, studio blockbuster kind of pictures. And he's personality wise, he's more distant in those other movies, but he's still, his presence is still so felt in in all of them. Like it, it doesn't feel exactly the same as the ones that his thrillers where he writes them himself, but like, as a filmmaker, his personality is still just kind of slathered over everything. Yeah. Mitch, you haven't really commented on how you feel about it quality-wise. I think Jessica and I are kind of on the same page where we think it's a pretty good movie, but it's not, it doesn't have the heart that we look for, you know, yeah. in the in the De Palma movies. Uh, well, I, I love we Scarface. I think Scarface is a monumental movie. I think that it has way more stuff to... To, to applaud than, you know, to damn. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's hilarious. I think it's very funny. I think it's mm-hmm. very, um, I think it's a satirical movie. So for all of its excesses, and, and the fact that, like, there's, like, no Cubans in this movie, which is also completely bonkers it's, about it's the almost cast of funny. it. It's like, what are you doing? Absurdly funny every time a new character is introduced as being Cuban or Colombian or... And it's like they're always Italian or not even or white, you know, until until we get to Uncle what's his, Uncle Tuco from Breaking Bad or whatever, 
you know, finally we have a, a, a Latinx man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, geez, about time. It's but crazy. it's kind of, in this day and age, it becomes clearer and clearer. Every time, you know, as the years go on, every time you watch Scarface, it becomes more and more absurd in a way. And that it's like, man, they just didn't even try. <laughs> and the score is so weird, too, because it's, it you know, it's, it's Giorgio Moroder. And so it's this whole different vibe. It's, it's not the Bernard Herman or John Williams doing Bernard Herman or Pino Donaggio doing you know his own thing yeah, with, uh, with a nod to bernard herman uh it's this crazy disco-y marauder score which i love which I, I love it i adore yeah. the score and i even like the dumb song you know the sort of it sounds like it could have been in a rocky movie yeah it's like a rocky montage song but i love it it plays at at my job sometimes i don't know where how it got into this play with list at work but it's like (laughs) i always got a tiger at your place of business (laughs) yeah i got you know tiger tied to the bridge or whatever but it's a, yeah, that's the other thing, you know, as far as collaborators, we should definitely discuss. We don't have to stop and have a whole discussion about it now, but co- composers certainly come into play with uh, with De, uh, De Palma and collaboration. And to me, like De, De Palma's quintessential, Donaggio is the quintessential De Palma composer. When I hear a score, when I think of a De Palma score, I think of him first. I think of Carrie. I think of even... Um, uh, blowout and just kill both you know to me that is a little bit a little bit more operatic a little bit more sweeping i don't know how you describe it sometimes i'm not great at describing music but um and a little bit and melodramatic you know in a in that meaning that in a in a disparaging way in, in, at all that's why Morricone's is the other choice when he's not when right. he's not working with you know Donaggio, he seems to be very happy when he gets an Neil Morricone to do stuff for him I kind of have always found Dinaggio's, and I say this as a complete compliment, but I've always found him his work with De Palma, because I don't think everything he does sounds like this, because I don't think um, the uh, score, the, what, what, is, what is that movie? Is it Don't Look or... Don't Look Now? Yeah, Don't, don't Look, look now. now. I don't think that his score in that sounds like this, but his work with De Palma, the thrillers, it's like a... Like a pervy approximation of Bernard Herrmann. It's like, or like a really, like a purposefully really cheap, like, mm-hmm. but in like a in, in a good way. I, I feel like that doesn't sound good with lots of sugar like more... and sugar and honey poured on the top. Yeah, it's, right, it's yeah. excessive. It's yeah. it's like yeah, decadent. It's almost, and I kind of feel this way about De Palma with his Hitchcock riffs, anyways. But I I feel like it extends to the music is. I, I mean, I kind of feel like they're both, in a way, spoofing Hitchcock and Herman yeah. <laughs> in some of their movies, yeah. kind of poking fun at them. And I always feel like that's very intentional with uh, Donaggio's. I mean, they have great beauty in them. And, like, yeah, they have, like, touched, like, especially the score to Blowout has, like, touched my heart. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, I think there's also a bit of a, you know, a bit of a poking fun at, at Herman with those, with those scores. Yeah. Brian De Palma, the modern master of suspense, invites you to witness a seduction, a mystery, a murder. Body double. You can't believe everything you see. John, how do you feel yeah. about body double? <laughs> I don't like body double. I just don't. I try. It's one of those movies I have that, you know, there's that, I've had, everybody has it, cinephile, whatever you want to call them, people that really care about film 
have a handful of movies that they keep trying to like, you know, for one reason. Well, maybe I'll be a different person the next time I watch it. And I just can't enjoy body double. I, I think I don't, I think I get what he's trying to do. And there's certainly things about it that I like, but, and, and I know this is not, I'm not the only one to say this. And I know there'll be a response to this. I just can't stand the lead. Just can't stand him. I want him to die. I'm like <laughs> almost rooting for him to die. And I just don't find there's nothing interesting about him to me. I just, so it kills the movie for me. And I know you, I know neither of you feel the same way, obviously, but uh, I can't help it. I try. I, I really don't think do try, you're guys. supposed to like Jake. I think Jake's an idiot. I don't, but you're all, you, I get not like, I'm not talking about likability because I'm not one of those people that's like, I got, I didn't find anybody to like in the movie. Something interesting though, <laughs> please. I need something interesting about a person if they're going to carry the movie and he does not interest me in the least. I just don't, I just don't care. Yeah. People okay, so people talk about him like he's a blank slate character, and that's why like he's just this like blank face, and it's just because Craig Wasson has no presence. But Craig Wasson does have presence, and it's as a stupid pervert nerd, and like that's what like that's I how agree. he leads to me. Like I yeah, that's what that character I don't like is. It. That's what that character like should it. be. The film okay, so I love I love this movie. It is one of my favorite De Palma movies. It's one of my favorite movies ever. If you catch me on the right day, I would sometimes say this is maybe my favorite De Palma. Um, it goes between this and Blowout and Carrie. Uh, and Carlito's Way and like 20 others. But those are the big four. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I love this movie. And to me, this movie is... There, I think, are... There are bits of you know satirizing and kind of poking fun at Hitchcock and I've already mentioned this you know in his previous movies he does this you know there's I think I think there's a lot of like tongue-in-cheek Hitchcock jokes in Dress to Kill like I don't think he's just you know homaging you know doing an homage to these movies I think he is kind of telling a joke with them but there, that, that joke isn't the thrust of the movie. I do think the joke here is the thrust. This is just... This is Vertigo and Rear Window. These are the two... Um, uh, who's the actor? In, uh, J- Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart. Stewart. Yeah. Why mm-hmm. did I forget that? Uh, this is the two big Jimmy Stewart Hitchcock classics slammed together into one movie. The, the voyeur Jimmy Stewart character just reduced to his now 80s uh, incarnation as this just like he's not like a harmful person but he is just a pervert nerd <laughs> and i the movie the movie is a comedy the movie is a parody of hitchcock and I think that I think Wasan is as that he is perfect what he, for what he needs to be for that movie. Um, yeah, I love him in it. I love the movie. Um, I think it's a John's comedy role. too. I think it's a comedy the, the same way as Phantom of the Paradise is a comedy. And I just I yeah I, I when I first saw it I don't think I got the joke. And I also think that then it was for a long time you couldn't see it except on a really bad video transfer. 
if you see the movie now, it's so gorgeous to look at. The mm-hmm. the black blacks are just incredible. The glare and the California sunlight. There's so much about it. I think that's really visually remarkable and and also cheesy and over the top and outrageous and 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 I mean when he takes the panties out of the trash can I mean it's just like he's not really going oh no he did and it's just like (laughs) that bit later with the cop who fishes them out of his like pocket yeah and the way the way that he says to Sully well, I think you're a pervert and a sex offender. Like that is rattling around my head constantly. It's the <laughs> funniest line reading to such a like. It is such a stupid thing to do. I could kind of see why how someone could do that. Like, but it's it's so funny. I'm sorry. It's such a funny movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm there with you. I, I, it, yeah, it just I don't think it's me. funny. John doesn't think <laughs> just it's don't. I tr- <laughs> Go to hell, John. What if whatever it is that's supposed to hug that you guys and I? I'm more. I'm so happy you guys like the movie. Trust me. I'm not. I never argue with anybody about it. I'm not <laughs> telling you it's a bad movie, but whatever it is that you guys grab onto, I can't. I just don't. I tried, and it just doesn't grab me. And so I don't know. Like it doesn't. I that line though. I do love that moment because I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, he is, and it's kind of funny yes, that he th- he that he's surprised. To- it's funny that he's surprised to hear it. <laughs> like, wait, well, what? Jimmy Stewart's he reacts- characters would be would be too, though. Like, oh, absolutely. Yes, this is just a heightened version of what a fucking creep Jimmy Stewart is in both those sure. movies that yeah. this is playing with. But guess yeah. what, Jimmy Stewart, Mitch, Mitch and I talked about this because I was we kind of already had this conversation the other day when I rewatched Body Double. Um. You can do all these things you're trying to do. Is his name Craig Wasson? Is that his name? You could do all these things you're trying to do with him. But if you get someone who's inherently interesting and have them do the exact same thing, that is going to take you a lot farther than a guy. I just, then why wasn't he in any other movie? Like, why did we have a career run? He had a little run of about five or six movies in there. Please. He's also in a very good episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. That's great. He was in Ghost Story. He was in. um, uh, Was he in Cutter and Bone? Was he in? Yeah, those those um, yeah those blockbusters. I'm not blockbusters. I'm just saying he was a working. I'm saying that he didn't. That's fine. There's a lot of working actors that are not even good actors that get a lot of movies. I'm just saying. I I am not saying he is good. I'm not saying he's good, like a good actor. Just as a guy, just as who he is. I'm not saying he's a good actor. I'm saying he is. Very good and perfect for this movie. I think I am actually drawn to him. I like watching him. I don't know why. I like the like goofy look on his face when the relax music video starts, and like he's being led in and he's kind of shaking his head like to the music. He's got this kind of like kind of dazed, hypnotic look on his face. I actually find him like he draws me in. I like watching him. Only in this. <laughs> and he sets the movie that's, up to be fine. stolen from him by Melanie Griffith in this mm-hmm. perfect way. Like, because in a way, I think she's the main character of the movie, even though she's not our point of view character or anything else. It would she's, take forever to get to her. Right, right. But she is the center of the film. Like, without her, the, the movie, I don't think, would, would work. So, so why, then, isn't she the, just the center of the movie? I mean... It's almost like we can go to Raising Cain, right? So Raising Cain, which I think is a terrible movie, 
and I think De Palma doesn't even think is a very good movie, was thrown way out of whack when he reordered that structure as well because he's like, well, I got to start with Lithgow. Well, that wasn't the intention at the beginning. So it was supposed to begin with, uh, what's her name, Lolita Davidovich, and we were supposed to follow her almost in a similar way that we follow um, Angie Dickinson in Dress to Kill. And I'm like, yeah, maybe that would have been more interesting. <laughs> maybe it would have made Raising Kate a better movie. The joke doesn't work. The but, central joke of the movie does not work without Craig Wasson. Right. And, and <laughs> no, think, I'm not saying he's not in the think, movie. And but I you, don't think oh. you made her the protagonist. I just don't think that that's... Then you got to get into the head of the porn star, and it's way more fun to be in this observational position to get I'm, to know her through this guy, and, and she can just be who she is and... And and the genius is that she then steals the movie because she's so honest and she is who she is and we don't have to okay. be in her head. Fair, fair. Que- that's a fair answer to the question. That's what I'm saying. Why? Why not? Good. That's fine. That, that's a good reason. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It wasn't a rhetorical question. Yeah. You know, I was Go actually hell, looking John. for an answer. This is my podcast now. Me and Mitch are in charge. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, we'll see about that because we're about to make a left turn here in a second. Um, <laughs> but to me, okay, to me, maybe the, because I don't buy, I don't care about the central joke like you guys do. Maybe I just that's not enough of an argument for me. So maybe I would rather just have a stronger point of view and a more interesting character to follow for the runtime of the movie. But yeah. you know, it's just like I said. Happy you guys like. Glad for everyone that likes body double it doesn't work for me how do you feel a about lot of brian de palman as much as much oh, i love i love that and i love that it's like this spiteful response to the hitchcock comparisons where he's flat out said like fine you're gonna compare me to hitchcock all the time i'll just shove it up your ass here you go i'm gonna like not even fuck around anymore i, I think that's all fun and everything but um you know de palma doesn't always work for me i mean his whole his entire catalog of movies not all of them i like very much you know i think so, there's only three i dislike <laughs> i mean i don't dis some of them i don't dislike but i don't they don't really work or and that's just part of the reason so maybe not, right now is a good time to talk about the the um we talk about this idea of how difficult it is to get these four truly great films in a row and one of the and there's multiple reasons and every filmmaker kind of has a different reason maybe and for me De palma's problem and i, well, I don't think this or maybe he has one, even if we talk about a different four movies briefly, um, is that he swings so hard for the fences. It's what makes him great. It's what makes him special. It's what makes me love him. But it makes it really hard to do it four times in a row. It's really hard to go four for four. Four home runs in a game is very rare. You know, to keep using the baseball analogy. So... I mean, I think those four... I mean, I think they're all four are solid hits, though. You know, I don't know if they're all home runs... But uh, right. that's the thing that we're kind of looking for four home runs. That's kind of what the idea of the but, game is. Or but at least even it always four is to hits, me. even four hits. I would hits. say three home runs and the ground rule double. So <laughs> I think there's two, I think there's two home runs, a um, yeah, body a double, double and, a, and a bunt single. <laughs> bunt single. <laughs> we, we've exhausted everything I know about baseball. <laughs> now, but, you know. It's it's interesting though that we talk about we're talking about body double you know this is the fourth of this uh, Jessica's proposed quadfecta, and that it is you know you you mentioned that it's kind of a mashup of Vertigo and Rear Window obvious there's obvious analogy but to me it, it Vertigo I don't know I think Vertigo comes through to me a little stronger like I think about it obvi- the the obviousness of and maybe because so many other movies have riffed riffed off the Rear Window like looking over into the other house like you know Disturbia or whatever movies you can think of. That vertigo, the vertigo comparison maybe stands out like him following her, that long following scene and so on. That maybe we could talk about 
some other movies that um, we don't have to talk about every one of them in, in, in as depth in as depth. So do you want to go much to the depth other four? We have. The other I want to talk four? about the other four, and I guess the I was trying to segue into obsession, right? Like we don't have to do it in exact order, but how to me, and I know you guys are going to disagree, or Jessica's going to disagree with me at least that I I think obsession is the better vertigo riff or the between the two body between body two. I mo- any old day I would rather watch obsession the way than you body feel double. like. I think I would. So when I say there's like three De Palma movies I don't like that I think are bad, I think Obsession's one of them. Wow, <laughs> you really have it bad. I don't wow. like it. I don't like yeah. it. I, I worked oh. up to. I rewatched it for the first time in years yesterday in preparation for this. But no, I do not like it. Um, I think it's. I think the biggest problem with this is I find it. I find it just dull as dishwater. I find it so boring. I I think it looks good. Um, I actually think Herman's music, as good as it is on its own, I think it just makes the entire thing make me want to fall asleep. Like, I think, actually, I think you could, I think if, and he hadn't worked with Dinaggio yet, but, like, I think someone like Dinaggio could have maybe given it a little bit more just a little bit more zazz it needs. Because I think maybe he's playing with some jokes. Because I don't think it's... I think it's the closest he gets to doing straight Hitchcock. But I don't think... I think he's still playing with some jokes in it. But I think I think it ends up maybe accidentally being played too straight. And... Can you think... I mean, if anybody but Cliff Robertson had been in it, it probably also would have had energy because it seems like Cliff Robertson is determined to just suck all of the all of the oh. life out of the movie because he's so... He's freaking out because he's being upstaged by, by Jean-Via Bougeot all through it. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to... I don't like putting all of it on one actor. I do not think he's good in this. Um... But I, I don't want to put it all on him. Like I, I don't think I don't think De Palma does his best work here. Yeah. I, I think De Palma doesn't bring it I don't think it synthesizes into something like to me it's the one where you get closest to being like, well maybe the critics where he's just a De Palma a, a Hitchcock ripoff are right. That's how I feel about that movie. <laughs> and wasn't there this whole other third of the movie, right, that didn't get shot that's in yeah. the script, which I still have never read. I have Schrader's script, Schrader's read. fourth act or whatever, mm-hmm. yeah. like, uh, if you will, yeah. Oh, yeah and Schrader, I don't. Wrote this. Yeah, Paul, it was a Paul Schrader script going around before De Palma had anything to do with it, and they had known each other. But um, I thought he they came, came up on. with the story together. No? I don't. I understood that Schrader came had had the script. Yeah, that was my Palma, understanding as well. Yeah. Oh, okay. um, and it was uh, obvious, you know, De Palma would have some interest in the script. Like, it's, you know, pretty clear what would draw him in to it. And then having worked with uh, Bernard Herrmann on Sisters earlier, I guess he was, chasing, according to Paul Hirsch, he was kind of chasing the dragon a little bit. He said, like, recording with Bernard Herrmann was the highlight of his career and maybe still is. I don't know. It's like the most exciting moment of his career was that recording session and how... For sisters, um, God, it's yeah. For sisters, how it was just amazing. I'm working with Bernard Herman for Christ's sake. It was just this thing. So he went and got him again for obsession and obvi- for again for obvious reasons too because it's such a massive Hitchcock riff. Um, it's 
I'll admit that the reason why I would rather watch Obsession than Body Double is the opposite of what I was just saying about De Palma. It does, it's a little bit more down the middle and safe. And I, I find the lushness and kind of the pacing of it and everything very soothing. And I find it... Yeah, like a lullaby. Um, I could, uh, yeah, well, I get you. I don't, I'm not disagreeing. And I certainly don't disagree about Cliff Robertson. I, I really wish there was someone else. I think she's fantastic. I think Lithgow is fantastic in his scenery-chewing way, you know. I always enjoy uh, how De Palma uses him, even even a little bit in Raising Cana movie I don't like, but I still enjoy Lithgow mm-hmm. just feasting on the scenery. But um, – Robertson's a little bit, you know, he's a little stiff and he's a little, not to be ageist, but he's a little old. It kind of feels like, oh, it seems a little obviously weird in the in the last half of the movie. It already seems like yeah. her father. It's already <laughs> weird. Yeah, it's already <laughs> weird. Um, and, and we know, you know, just from stories everyone tells that he was trying to suck the life out of the movie. He was like taking these super long pauses between lines when he was doing scenes with her stuff that frustrated her and he was doing it intentionally and he was leaning into shots or whatever. It's like weird stuff he was doing to try to, he wasn't very happy and De Palma hated him, right? Like just couldn't stand working with him. So, and you can feel it a little bit, but so I'm not, I'm not going to put this up there and say it's a truly great film. I just think for my personal taste, if you gave me the, if you, you know, pull them out of off the shelf, which one do you want to watch? I'd rather watch it. But in the context of the quadfecta we're talking about, so this would be um, number three in the quadfecta we're proposing. Uh, how uh, much? The, uh, potential the other, other one? one. Yeah. The potential other one, which starts with sisters. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, speaking, you were mentioning Bernard Herrmann, and it got me thinking of sisters. I love his score in sisters, but that's because he's a little funky with it, and it like it's got that mm-hmm. synthesizer, like. He's having fun because he hasn't worked yeah. well, in a yeah. while. I I feel like it was so exciting for Herman to get a job. And then, especially in the aftermath, apparently, it changed his life. Oh, yeah. Again. He, he got this like, second life. So many other movies, Taxi Driver. Yeah. Yeah. And he was, it was much, you know, much happier, even though he was apparently not a very happy man, generally yeah. speaking. But he was relatively happier after getting that job. And um, between him and Scorsese and Taxi Driver and all that you know the last thing he ever did was score taxi driver um he got that little second life so that's nice but it does yeah it does sound like he's having more fun on sisters than you would even think it feels like he's kind of doing what he was it kind of just feels like he's doing something he would give hitchcock Mm -hmm. but this doesn't sound like this sounds like a hitchcock score but because of that synthesizer it sounds like something it ends up i mean kind of in the way that I think Dinaggio's music does with the rest of Hitchcock, I mean, with the rest of De Palma's uh, thrillers, is it ends up heightening it to this, like, playful, like, the music almost tells you we're playing, kind of playing around with Hitchcock here. Yeah, and that, you know, that word playful is really interesting because of these movies, Obsession is the only one that isn't playful, right? No. And the other three are all playful in, you know, in lots of different ways. I mean, in Carrie and Fan of the Paradise and Sisters, there are De Palma makes fun of a game show. He, you know, he's doing all sorts of interesting things. Even the way he uses the split screen in Sisters is really actually playful because he's like I'm actually going to try to use this as a suspense engine and allow you to mm-hmm. truly see exactly what's going on with the people that are, the cops are on their way to arrive and the person who's trying to get the body uh, hidden. 
and do it absolutely simultaneously, not cross-cutting, but letting you watch both parts is kind of genius. It is. And this is a movie now, you know, I had had my experiences with the De Palma films we talked about earlier being early, you know, like my early De Palma fandom. This was one that didn't come around for me until the Criterion Collection put it out. And I worked at a video store, and we had the, we had made this giant Criterion Collection section in our video store. It was really exciting. It's like, wow, I got to watch the Sisters movie, and I didn't like it then, <laughs> and, and I can't even remember why. But there's something about it. I don't know. Maybe it just wasn't the right day for me to watch it, or something put me off about it. But I was just like, ah, uh, that's. Yeah, but he didn't have it together yet, or like whatever my mind told me was made it not such a great movie. And then I watched it again recently, and absolutely loved it. Just totally understood it now. And love all the fun, the playful stuff. The th- it feels like he's experimenting with these ideas that became part of his trademark, you know. So it feels a little looser, more like a riff on his own or an exploration of his own style to come. And it's just a blast. I don't know. I just had a blast watching it this time. Um, and for, a, you know, it's not a first feature, but it kind of, it's not his first feature, but it kind of feels like it in a way. It's the one I mean. where he becomes, like he had done like, what, five movies before this more or less like i, I can't something remember there's like some that, yeah. weird small ones in there too uh but this is the one where like it feels like he becomes the palma and you get a little like so there across all his movies there's a sense of humor mm-hmm. but i feel like the sense of humor here is more kind of like the sense of humor of what he had been doing before he had found thrillers as like his mode of filmmaking um the humor, and there's a little bit of this in Carrie as well, but the humor is more in line with, like, greetings and hi, mom. Uh, whereas with um, uh, the, some of those later thrillers we were talking, there's a more sophisticated humor. It's kind of less like this, like, goofy... It's hard to explain. The, the, there's a rawness, a raw goofiness to the humor in his earlier movies mm-hmm. where there's... Everything's much more controlled with, uh, you know, body double, for instance. Right. Even in yeah. Carrie, there's a raw goofiness to some of the, the kids stuff with the TV sped up and the cruising stuff. And then you get to the then you get to the Fury, and the humor becomes really mannered, you know, mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. the mother knuckles scene in the apartment or the two cops in the cars, and it's not the same kind of goofy, Mad Magazine kind of humor that's in in the earlier stuff. And, and does he ever like maybe wise guys? But do we yeah, wise guys, and then he's guys? trying it with Bonfire of the Vanities, and it doesn't really work. But he's trying well, to make a funny movie with that. But, kind and of even that funny. Bonfire of the Vanities is funny. It, it's more kind of funny, closer in the way of how he had been, how he what he had been becoming, rather than he never does return to the kind of sense of humor that he has in those early in the sixties and seventies stuff. Yeah. But it's sister, so sisters has this wonderful. I don't know. It's just a, it just feels fresh, you know, mm-hmm. and original, and like a guy kind of coming into his own uh, as a filmmaker. And then we go to Phantom of the Paradise, right next, and uh, which also is God, fresh, that, I think very, very fresh. much so. Be, well, now he's like it's a different genre in a way. There's thriller aspects and horror aspects to it, obviously, but it's musical, right? Like the stylistic, so many of the stylistic choices are. Um, allowable in, mu- in musicals, if you get what I mean. Like you can just like, um, you know, the mu- the musical notes coming overlaid over candles and all this stuff that he's doing, and just breaking away from the story for a moment to just go into song and having these absurd 
you know, like not spatially logistically realistic things happening. A man sitting in the middle of a giant record and like just pointing at people and they sing at different genres of music, all that stuff. It's a, it's such a blast of a movie. It's one of the, this is the one that I consider to be truly great. Like I, I could watch Phantom of the Paradise and yet it has five no times third a year act. and not get bored. Yeah, it, yeah, I don't care about it. It's like <laughs> one of those movies that just doesn't yeah. doesn't urge you to care over. about such yeah. things. Yeah. It's like, and it's just stylistically, you know, the 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 design of the Phantom uh, character, uh, the vocoder, all that stuff is just so cool, you know. And you just, I don't know, man. It's just one of those things. It's like raw seventies crazy De Palma fun. How do you feel about Phantom of the Paradise, Jessica? Uh, I like it. It's actually one that I, I kind of feel out of stock with because it is, it's the one that has become like the, like I think Blowout's still the one that people say is the the you know the one that oh this is the best one. But there's been a contingent of people with, uh, uh, with this one, uh, with uh, Phantom of the Paradise, and like I think it's good. It's just not what I come to for De Palma, and like, I also I don't find the uh, the central romance that gripping to me. I do like like I love Jessica Harper a lot in it, um, but like the music's amazing. Like I love uh, what is that Paul Williams? Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, his soundtrack is great. I I listened I listened to the soundtrack way more than I watched the movie. Like I'll drive around and I'll listen to like. You know, the hell with it or whatever it's called. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's I good. Think I it's just that. not a personal favorite. It's good, yeah. though. I like it. <laughs> and and that's a that's a take on the movie I can 100 percent understand, because to me, I think it's to me, it's great because it is a personal favorite. I'm not sure. Like you say, Mitch, Mitch is saying it doesn't really have a third act. Well, it kind of so that kind of disqualifies it in a certain way. It's like <laughs> it's not a great film in the same sense as Dress to Kill or, or it's Blow messy. Up, but I also kind of love it <laughs> yeah, that it's, it's an outlier. Yeah. It's, it's such an outlier, too. It's just completely different than I mean, than what. Pretty much anybody's ever made. I mean, how many movies do you, would you relate this it, movie to or compare this movie to? I don't. It's also many. one of the rare movies he he mainly keeps like the Hitchcock the Hitchcock references. He mainly keeps it to his thrillers, mm-hmm. uh, but this is full of them, and this is a very Hitchcockian musical. You even have uh, where um, what's his name Beef gets the plunger in the face. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's and the it's psycho supposed to kind of like psycho. Yeah. yeah, the psycho shower yeah. scene. And then, a, and then an assassination at the end, which is like man who knew too much. So he's pulling mm-hmm. these things very, you know, these real obvious Hitchcock things and just like smashing them together without even having to to connect them really, like. That assassination on live TV comes out of nowhere. It's like, what? And we're I mean, do I don't what? even know if, <laughs> like, I don't know if he knew he'd be doing more thrillers. Like, because I think up to this point he had only done this was Sisters was right before this, and that was his first true thriller. Right. He has mm-hmm. this smaller movie called Murder a la Mode, which plays with some Hitchcock ideas, but it's it's very like '60s student art film. Right. Um. But with this one. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, and then just, and then it's weird that he can go from that to this kind of dreary obsession, right? Which mm-hmm. then doesn't—I don't think it does very well at the box office either. 
So I think well, yeah, when Carrie fell asleep during it. Yeah. So when Carrie <laughs> comes his way, he's like, "Yeah, this is people a, really weren't into the idea. incest either of it." I yeah, the incest. Think. The incest doesn't bother me. I'm like, that's great. He should have gone wilder with either. it. He should have gone Trey crazier did. with it. Yeah. They originally <laughs> did go. The story, you know, again, quote to Paul Hirsch again. It was his idea. They were not going to put the movie out. Because it was like, there people are not going to accept that he marries his daughter and sleeps with her. And he said, well, what if we just make it seem like a dream? And that's literally like, so they hedged a little bit there with the Ripley dissolves or whatever mm-hmm. that they do there to make it. Well, the audience won't register it as having really happened. And I just that's, don't know if that works at all. But it's, He's too old and so like... I'm sorry. He keeps he makes it feel safe, and I get why they would want it to feel safe. Yeah, but like you should have gone. You should have gone someone really handsome. Like they should have been a cute couple. Like hey, Cliff Robertson used to be really handsome. No, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm fine. sure. In 1976 or whatever year this came out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who would have been? Who would have been? Because it has to be someone it, old enough. Well, but like, um, I mean, Kirk Douglas. Kills it in the fury that he True. works. I still think he's as, a little too old, though. I think he's. I think you need someone who's. I don't know. You need. You don't want to automatically look at them and think like, "Oh, this is." They look like a father and daughter. Right. So you're looking. <laughs> oh well, at yeah, the, in, in obsession for sure. So yes. the generation. Yeah. So Donald Sutherland, maybe. I could see Southern, Sutherland. I, I'm not sure how old. Honestly, most if they're old enough, most of those '70s guys would have been interesting. Like, yeah. Bruce Stern. Uh, hell, well, Elliot you could, Gould. Elliot Gould. <laughs> you could old age, instead of going the other way and having Robertson supposed to be much younger in the earlier mm-hmm. phase of the movie, you have the actor be, you know, their age in the first half of the yeah. movie and then old age them just a little. Like, yeah. just put the little gray streak in. The stuff they used to do back then to indicate age yeah. before, the, before the days of, like, incredible makeup appliances that yeah. would actually convince you. But yeah, it, it, I think you're right. No, don't get me wrong. Yeah, Cliff Robertson, Cliff Robertson doesn't work in that movie. But we're going, we're we're moving past obsession. We're not going to obsess over. I know, obsession but I anymore. love we're this obsession casting thing. Carry. Like, who are the craziest yeah. ones? Like Rip Torn or Hopper? Oh, Rip Torn would have been no, because yeah, I don't think Rip Torn would have worked. When did Rip Torn play a lead that? Was he ever really a lead? I don't know, but I think about him in Man Who Fell to Earth, and he was just like this, yeah. you know. His, his, what it, about what about Paul Newman? Yeah, actually, like, that age, that, that his age, and it would make it older. it would make it maybe too icky for the audience once they found out. But that's kind of what you yeah, you, you should that push that. That would have been great. <laughs> yeah, but that was the time of his career where he was kind of. Mm-hmm. What's that? What's that right winger movie he made that where he plays the that nobody saw. Where's the right wing radio guy? Where he was like, oh. he was messing around with his reputation yeah. or with his persona a little bit oh, in that right. era. So he might have, even Slapshot, well, Slapshot's so much fun. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's like it's not being a handsome boy anymore. But let's mess around with the persona, the yeah, lovable Newman. Newman, Newman and maybe, oh, yeah, so Newman would have been. There we go. We recast And the, the other session. alternative <laughs> reality um, thing is that I always think about that movie Coma. And if De Palma, not that he was ever offered to De Palma, I don't think, but I'm just, I look at Coma and I'm like, man, if Brian De Palma had directed Coma, it would have been insane. Except, except he wouldn't have wanted to, Michael Douglas in that either, right? Just like Fatal Attraction. 
Yeah, what that's he, true. He <laughs> did want did he dislike Michael Douglas <laughs> entirely? He never wanted to work with him, or was it yeah. just fatal attraction? Uh, well, he just said he's not sympathetic enough, and he doesn't have to be sympathetic in coma. Oh, no, not in coma. So no, he's, he's, he's supposed to not be, kind of. Yeah. Before, so, you know, anybody could have been. Oh, see, we're recasting Obsession, and we're, re- we're put, putting a new director in the <laughs> on coma. coma, which yeah. might have been helpful. All right, so anyway, um, Carrie. So this brings us to Carrie, which is, like, one of his... I think it's one of his masterpieces. It's one of the three. Yeah, it's a perfect 100%. movie, I think. <laughs> I think it is, too. I, I just watched it again uh, a couple nights ago, and, I, I, and I'm, still, I'm still moved by it in all sorts of ways. I'm still scared by it. Like I just think that Piper Laurie is so terrifying, and mm-hmm. the cruelty that is just being communicated is so real. And what she does with her voice, I mean, her performance is so bizarre. And, yeah, yeah. It's, it's something. He is so good in this movie at almost almost making you forget that you're watching a horror thriller. Because mm-hmm. I care so much about, like, the drama of these characters and, like, oh, Carrie, just get over this, you know, this shyness. And even though I know where it's coming, I've seen this so many times. But, like, I mean, the horror of this film really only kicks in in the last 20, 25 minutes. There's, like, bits and pieces of it throughout. But most of the movie up to up until the prom, most of this movie is, it's, you know, it's like a, it's like a character drama. It's a high school character drama. Um, and like, I genuinely am interested, even the assholes, even John Travolta and, um, Nancy Allen, Nancy Allen's character, like even them, I'm like, I'm, I'm engaged with them at all times. Like, well, their relationship is so dysfunctional and weird and, you know, smacking each other and it's, yeah, it's really crazy. I, I actually wanted to ask you guys about this. Um, do you think that part of his, you know, we were talking about how, Jessica, you said how the the horror doesn't really kick in until like the latter quarter, fourth of the movie or so. And he's, it's a character driven drama, but is he also, as part of his strategy to lull you into thinking it's different, like reminding you of specific things? Like I, when they're cruising, I'm just like right in American graffiti and I feel like that was intentional. I like mean, it maybe. really feels like he's, it looks so much the same and so many of the same things are happening. People pulling up and yelling over, hey, we're going to this place and here, give me a beer, all this stuff. Yeah, it's and, a high and, school he, and it goes on so long <laughs> that it's like it, there's not really much to the scene other than to sort of make you think you know we get a little bit of the character mm-hmm. between the two of them a little bit of the relationship but otherwise it kind of feels like he's lulling us into feeling this other uh feeling like we're watching a different kind of movie over and over and then to your point about C- carrie and like really caring about her and the li- the lipstick scene you know what i'm talking about where mm-hmm. she's p- trying on the lipstick in the store and she's st- starting to smile a little bit she's starting to enjoy it a little bit and for some reason there's a person leering at her oh, yeah, over her shoulder it's like really don't forget that people don't forget that people think she's weird like like there's two things happening in that scene at the same time i mean as but a i do i love her always, so much right i've always there. found that particular scene like really moving like just this i don't know it's a beautiful image and then yeah you do have that like just that little undercurrent of icky with the the person just staring her down during it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's just such a it's just such a well built movie. Like it mm-hmm. just builds in such a perfect way. And, and the people that like, the fact I'm with that y'all. Betty Buckley gets killed in the prom 
You know, it's like the the true uh, insanity of Carrie's rage. Nobody is safe. And mm-hmm. you just did not expect that some character who has done the right thing every step of the way is going to just be completely annihilated the way that she is. And that makes you really feel like anything can happen. And it's intentional. Like, you know, I always feel like as many times I've seen the movie, I always feel like I'm questioning, like, how I remember that going down. And I always think of her as collateral damage. Uh, But it's intentional because... And a part of the heartbreak of it is that you get so much of this movie, you get this mother projecting onto Carrie, acting cruelly towards her, feeding her these ideas that are not true um, or potentially not true or not entirely true. And then when the shit goes down, all that shit flows in, right? They're all going to laugh at you is in her head. And she actually sees Betty Buckley laughing at her, which didn't happen. And it's shot in this like kind of kaleidoscope way because it's showing everyone right. like that. It's these brief moments where you see someone's face and it's like in this kaleidoscope effect of them laughing at her. But that's the only time you actually see her. You see some other people still laughing outside of this. It's the only time yeah. you actually see her laughing like that because she's not actually doing it. No. And it's this great because bit Mom, of like POV filmmaking that he that he manages. Yeah, it is. It, it's like Mom has her convinced that everybody's going to laugh, mm-hmm. so she sees everybody laugh. Yep. Some people are. She's definitely not, but she murders her for this delusion her and mother And you know, because you've watched the whole movie, when you see Betty Buckley laughing at her, you're shocked by it, and you instantly think, no, 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 this can't be true. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and then you're out of it. And it's like mm-hmm. the confidence of knowing exactly what the audience is going to think at that moment when I give them the one false image of the entire film, it's it's pretty impressive. Yeah, it is. And that whole, and then, you know, there's just the flat-out basic joy <laughs> Of the massacre, and I hate to put it that way, but it's—I get a charge out of it. It's sad, it's tragic, but I get her eyes, the blood, the way she walks down those stairs with the fire behind her. It's just cinematically—it's just beautiful, and and it gives me a charge. It's just, mm-hmm. just to be real simple about it, it's cool. And yeah. nothing is cooler though than. Her killing John Travolta and Nancy Allen the way she does and how that plays out. It's so phony looking in a, such an amazing way. Like way her mm-hmm. body is all contorted when the car goes around and uh, undercranked and then flips over. And then the all those quick like cut zooms. Jump I don't know. What, what would be the... They're jump cuts. They're jump cuts, but they're zooming the in with the effect. Is so, it just gives me a rush. And uh, so there's like... There's the... The more uh, emotional joys of the movie, and then there's the like kind of the uh, ghoulish joys of the movie that work together so well. And uh, it's yeah, pure masterpiece, one hundred percent. If this movie moves, if this movie, there's nothing between Carrie and Just to Kill. Boy, we sure, I think we pretty much have one, right? You know, but um, as far as the quad factor goes, but, but I would, yeah, I, I might, Carrie. I would step in and just say that. There's something about the fury that really captivates me and that it works on this absolutely comic book, ridiculous spy thriller fantasy frequency because it does just enough things that are provocative and and unsettling in terms of the relationship that Robin has with Fiona, whatever her name is, Fiona Lewis, um, 
the just the inherent cruelty and presence of John Cassavetes in it, the the, the likability of Kirk Douglas, who usually plays characters who are kind of kind of rakes, but you kind of like him as this kind of dad who, who gives a shit about his about his kids. Andrew Stevens is metamorphosis into this creature, and you know the sympathy that you have for for Amy Irving's character, you know, surrounded by these people at the institute, Carrie Snodgrass and. And Charles Durning, who are all seem to be looking out for her best interests, uh, you know, and then these set pieces and the fucking John Cassavetes blown up at the very end. It's, it's the greatest. Like, it's so great. It's and so entertaining. It has it. such a will to entertain at almost every single step that, yeah, it's not a great movie, but there's something about it that always just takes me. Uh, by the throat and just drags me happily through the experience. I mean, I think that's how I feel about it too. It's not great, but I like it. And I love John Cassavetes and I love, he's got two really solid villain turns in his career. Like uh, Guy Woodhouse is my most, I've said this before, the character I hate the most in all of cinema, <laughs> like I can't, in, in a good way. <laughs> he's perfect in Rosemary's Baby, and I hate him so much. And this, he's not some, he's not much better in this, you know, like he's not as interesting a character, and I'm not as interested in the story, generally speaking. But he's a great villain, Cassavetes. He's a great actor, I think. He makes um, a really good bad guy. <laughs> yeah. So the Fury works fine, but yeah, I wouldn't, you know, I don't think it's a bridge between no, two and home movies is in there too, so it kind of gets in the way. Yeah. And I've never, I mean, I I'll, I'll admit, love, I've never seen. I like it. the Fury, but I don't love it. Yeah, yeah, great score. Oh, home, you so I think seen home movies. It's not really. It's interesting I, I, it's on, as like if you're someone who's interested in digging into artifacts about like certain auteurs, like it's very interesting into what it says about De Palma, but it's not sure. a very good movie. <laughs> One it does of these have days. some of that. I know it's on YouTube, and you can just watch it, but. Um, mm-hmm. It Maybe does have some of the that. old goofy humor playfulness. It does. Of Maybe his, the last of the, time of high greetings and high mom. So there is that. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the spirit of the of the concept of the show, personally, I don't think De Palma quite gets there for the quad factor. Like I just, I think he just kind of has the clunker or just the little bit of the dip that keeps it from being that level greatness across the board. But again, it doesn't matter. It's really just a it's just a way to get into a conversation about <laughs> the movies in particular order. But I don't know. What do you what do you two think? You're, uh, you're dead wrong. You son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm Scarface I mean, is just yeah, as it, good it as Just to actually... Kill. Okay. <laughs> no. Well, that's the thing. That's what's so frustrating. Is I do actually think Scarface. Like, it's one that I personally am not as engaged with, but I do think it's a great movie. Like, yeah. Like, I it's think a funny, it's a funny game. Especially that we're if you throw here. cultural impact in. Yeah. Like, Scarface in some ways has more cultural impact than all than of these, except maybe, maybe Carrie, yeah, Carrie. Would, be, would be the only other one. But, um, so you got to give him some credit for, you know, that may mitigate qualms you have with the film itself if it has this amazing. And it kind of does for me. And the thing is, the movie is also, like, when you're watching, I don't know how, like, enjoyable it is just as the marathon of that movie. But it is, like, if you just put on a scene, like, each individual scene is really gripping. Like, they're really well put together, and it's good. Like, it's a very good movie. (laughs) And he's one of very few filmmakers that we've encountered that actually have four, have a couple of sets, two sets of four. 
which is yeah. pretty amazing too. So you know that's like... we we decided that Kurosawa actually did do it twice uh, in an episode a few years ago. Boy, uh, it was you. I'm trying to remember the oh, order I'm sorry, of them. Yo, Jimbo Sanjiro, Bad Sleep Well, and Red Beard. Is that right, Mitch? Yes, oh, boy, I can't remember. Yeah. But then we also had um, or Hidden high Fortress, and low. Seven Hidden Samurai. Fortress. Or High and Low, you're right. You're right. High and Low, not Bad Sleep Well. Which I think those... Red, the Red, Red Beard was the questionable one, but Mitch and I both rewatched it. And we're like, man, it's a really great film, though. It's, it's really different. It's the star different. face of, uh, <laughs> of Kurosawa's filmography. <laughs> right. But... Uh, and we and there's other people still to talk about. I think we've talked about Howard Hawks. We haven't had done an episode about Howard Hawks mm-hmm. yet. It's possible he had a couple. We don't know. Hitchcock isn't always a contentious <laughs> conversation. Yeah. I think most people disagree with me about the birds. Yeah. So uh, not that I hate the Do birds I, or anything. Do you like I just or dislike it? I like it, but I don't think it's nearly as good as Vertigo, Psycho, and That's how I feel North by Northwest. I'm like, it's fine. That's how De Palma <laughs> yeah. is, too. He said that about yeah. He does the old, say what you will about yeah. the birds one way or the other, but it's not as great as you know the, these other films. I mean, that's it's, the thing about De Palma is he's really just hitting on, I mean, he'll pull little bits and pieces, but he's really just hitting on three Hitchcock movies over and over mm-hmm. again. It's really just Vertigo, Rear Window, and... Psycho. Uh, Psycho. psycho and he just keeps and i mean i you could argue that there's a fair bit of um north by northwest in his movies uh mission impossible even arguably right. yeah mm-hmm. uh but yeah it's really those three that he just he is obsessed with at least as far as using them as vehicles for his other ideas yeah and he well, mostly talks about vertigo right as that was the one that got him interested in all of it. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, in film yeah, I think so, in yeah. general. So which is fascinating to me. Didn't he say he saw it when he was ten years old or something like Vertigo? No, I think he I, I no, love no, Vertigo. No, 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 he was he was born in wasn't he born in nineteen forty? Forty something, yeah. Either forty or forty five, but he saw oh, it when it right. came out in fifty eight, so I thought it was I thought he was born in forty. Yeah, well and that's what's also interesting. Those movies were all like right next to each other. Uh, I mean Rear Window's a little bit earlier, but Vertigo and Psycho are very near to it's like this very specific yes. uh set. Well Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. Uh we always ask if there's anywhere we can find you uh in the um Twitter sphere, blogosphere, uh wherever sphere. Yeah, uh, so you can find me on Twitter uh, at uh, at Bad Posts LLC, um, and I do some writing. I had an article come out earlier this year at Polygon um, uh, about uh, Doom Patrol, the, the the Doom Patrol comic, and kind of a '90s revival version of it that happened with the trans science fiction writer uh, Rachel Pollock. Um, but yeah, if you just want to find me, me, uh, I, I post all my writing from on, on Twitter. So if okay. I have anything new comes out from there. All right, John, anybody wants to find us? Where do they find us? Where do they find us? Alien Minute Pod on Twitter and Instagram. That's about it. That's or, about or we have the Alien Minute or the 007 by 7 um, listening groups on Facebook. But that's about it. Okay. Still pretty active. Still episodes coming out on the Alien Minute like this. The Alien Minute feed still has episodes coming here and there. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. We'll see you all next time. Bye-bye. All right.